Want to make mom's day? Get to your Nordstrom Rack now and score amazing deals for Mother's Day, which is Sunday, May 12th. Find tons of gifts from only $30 at Nordstrom Rack. Fragrance, jewelry, luxury bags, activewear, beauty, and more. Save on Kate Spade, New York, Stuart Weitzman, and Ted Baker, London. Great brands, great prices. So shop your Nordstrom Rack store today and treat mom to the good stuff from just $30. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. Hello and welcome to This is Critical. I'm Virginia Heffernan. On This is Critical, we question all of our cultural creeds, like that the January 6th hearings are a plotting news event, when in fact it's a riveting true crime drama with amazing protagonists and especially monstrous villains. Also, you should binge the first two episodes of the hearings on YouTube to prep for the next cliffhanger coming soon to all the channels. So as I might have told you before, I tend to think that humans know nothing about nutrition. I think this so much that I think it might not even be a legitimate field of study, or certainly study for amateurs. But we all like to think we do know about nutrition, and what's weird is we keep affecting absolute certainty in each new cycle of food trends. You all in your youth probably think the fact that we once believed that margarine and low-fat snackwell cookies were magic foods, you probably think that's the stuff of myth, but it really happened. In the 80s, we abandoned the incredible edible egg for all things fat-free. Then one day, everyone told us that a pound of pasta with no oil or butter and just ragu sauce followed by fat-free cookies was actually the road to ruin. Dutifully, we switched back to full-fat milk and then equally dutifully almond milk and now it's oat milk and acai berries instead of fat-free chocolate chips and margarine. It's stressful. I think of it like this experience a roommate and I had at a Mac repair shop in the 90s. We were running out of RAM. We went into the Mac repair shop and they sold us something called a RAM doubler. RAM doubler, it will double your RAM. We went home, it worked for a day or two, and then our computers broke down. We went back to the Mac repair shop. We told them about using RAM doubler and they said, RAM troubler? No one uses that. So I'm not sure there really are superfoods that are superfoods for all time and for all people. Instead, I think all food is pretty super. And we generally do best to experiment with what we like, taste good, and doesn't give us wretched food poisoning, and then stop overthinking. But my guest today gives us more to think about. And her insights led my brain in a whole other direction. Lisa Haushofer is a historian with a PhD in the history of science and an MD. In her book, Wonder Foods, The Science and Commerce of Nutrition, Lisa reviews panoramically the history of what she calls wonder foods, foods that promise to give so much more than just sustenance. They're also foods that make you wonder. Now, you might be thinking of quinoa and soylent, 
But did you know Fleischmann's yeast once claimed that it would not only make bread rise, but also cure pimples, boils, and constipation? Or that Kellogg believed that flaked breakfast cereal would aid digestion and also result in race betterment? Truly horrifying. So let's start there. Lisa, welcome to This is Critical. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. So you write quite a bit about one of the most controversial purveyors of wonder food, John Harvey Kellogg. Tell us a little bit about Kellogg. So I I imagine that Kellogg's name is actually familiar to a lot of listeners um, from the cereal boxes that we have on our breakfast table. So Kellogg is the originator, you might say, of our modern breakfast cereal. And the modern Kellogg company actually goes back to a company that Kellogg founded with his brother. So Kellogg was a religious health reformer and a physician. Um, He was a Seventh-day Adventist, and he grew up very much influenced by the ideas of Seventh-day Adventism, um, most importantly, um, this idea of what's called Christian physiology. So the idea that a healthy body, including healthy nutrition, is important for a healthy spiritual life. Hmm. And Kellogg was sponsored by Ellen White, who was one of the co-founders of Seventh-day Adventism to get a medical education. And so he got actually two kinds of medical education. One was in Christian physiology more strictly, and the other was in sort of more orthodox medicine. And these two educations really influenced Kellogg throughout his life. And he started his own religious health institution, the so-called sanitarium in Battle Creek, which he imagined as a you know very religious, but also sort of very forward-looking medical institution. And this sanitarium was an institution where basically mostly white middle-class patients would come for a period of time for particular diseases and for their general health. And they'd be given a particular diet, particular exercise regime. And the foods that patients were served in the sanitarium were also sold more broadly as health foods. Hmm. And flaked cereal was one of the first successful health foods. So he was a big health food producer as well. He was also a fervent eugenicist, So he believed in the supremacy of the white race. He was very concerned that the white race had degenerated through too much civilization. And he also, at the same time, believed that things like diet and lifestyle choices can actually improve the hereditary material that uh, humans had been equipped with, which was a view known as euthenics at the time. So he kind of combined eugenics and euthenics in what he called um, race betterment. So essentially the idea that, you know, the, the white race can be improved through diet and exercise. Wow. Okay. So this idea that civilization, or let's say the comforts of civilization, are making white people weak is kind of related to things we've talked about on this show before, including Tucker Carlson's initiative and kind of hyper-masculinity. And there's a sort of ambient fear that other people, in particular people of color and immigrants, are healthier. And that, that, you know, white people have grown emasculated and flabby and they need to do farm work or, or, or eat better. And in your book, you go to this idea that the eating habits from kind of, quote, primitive groups have been exoticized. 
And once again, we're looking at the diets of people of color and particularly indigenous people. Mm -hmm. What about that kind of appropriation? Yeah. And there's really a particular episode that's that's also related to, to Kellogg that very much has to do with the appropriation of indigenous food knowledge. So in general, around this period, sort of end of the 19th and early 20th century, this idea that uh, the white race had degenerated resulted in a lot of interest in what were called primitive diets on the one hand. So a search for, you know, the original way of eating. Mm -hmm. And Kellogg was one of the people who was really, really interested in that. So he actually went and did, well, you can call it research, but it's it's really um, an exploitation of indigenous people. And in particular, he was interested in the Quetzan people, which is a, a native group in southern Arizona, because he thought they were the only unspoiled tribe that was still left. So he thought that, you know, most indigenous groups had been sort of spoiled by civilization. So he went there and studied them and studied their eating habits and their their food customs and appropriated some of that knowledge in order to make his products. So, for example, the idea for the flaked cereal very likely also came from the tortillas that he saw being produced by Quetzan women because he had this idea about digestion that, you know, essentially the modern bread, that the modern sort of civilized bread was actually bad for the digestive system because the big modern loaves didn't allow for the heat to really go through all the grain and sort of produce what he thought of as a, a process of starch digestion that was occurring through heat. So he thought that modern American people were constantly eating some somewhat undigested bread. So this idea of, sort of the flaked cereal, uh, a much more flat version of a cereal product allowed for essentially the heat to supposedly convert the starch of the flake uh, into more readily digestible sugar. So this is his mix of these sort of scientific ideas that he takes from the the research on digestion at the time that was going on, but then also his eugenic leanings and his scientific racism, where he appropriated these insights from indigenous people. Yeah, and we're still left with so many artifacts of this period, including, you know, the fetishization of diets that we see as primordial or as essential to humans. You know, obviously there's paleo for one. Yeah, and this vet vet that goes through these narratives of progress, but then also fear of progress and sort of this wanting to go back to an original way of eating that's sort of inherent in diets like paleo and, and Atkins, um, that's still super, super powerful. That really is a constant. So that was also one of the questions, you know, why are these ideas so tenacious and keep returning in different forms. So I'm, I'm noticing that there's this interesting contradiction in what Kellogg was doing. On the one hand, he was concerned with gluttony and overconsumption. And on the other, he was peddling a consumer product. And you still see that with diet culture today. Dieting, in theory, is about consuming less, but then you have to buy all these diet products. It feels like when you're supposed to declutter your house and that comes with <laughs> buying a lot of equipment to declutter it and then that turns into clutter yeah. itself. <laughs> I mean, how was all this born? Because this paradox seems like the essence 
of contemporary diet culture. Yeah, absolutely. And it's, I mean, the mental gymnastics that went into that were just so fascinating to to read about, I have to say. It, you know, this is the moment when like this fear of degeneration turns into exactly, as you say, a critique of consumption, a critique of gluttony. You know, the modernity has perverted our tastes. And then at the same time, he had this health foods emporium, essentially, where he, you know, he's still very interested in getting people to consume the right foods. So he had this really elaborate theory of the appetite, that the appetite could basically be rebooted, that you could Mm. kind of restore the natural impulses of the body and that required training. Um, So, you know, the sanitarium was a way of obviously nourishing people properly, but also teaching them about proper nutrition, telling them how to sort of observe their bodies and sort of paying attention to getting back to their natural tastes and likes. And this was also a very religious idea that there is sort of this original sort of natural taste that is healthy and that tells your body exactly what it needs, this kind of intuitive appetite. And Kellogg was also responding to a food trend at the time that he didn't like, right? This is a trend you describe in your book, a trend to make foods more easily digestible by adding enzymes so they were partly pre-digested like you'd give to a baby bird. Uh, And he didn't like that. So there was this idea that, you know, these products, because they were already partially digested, would essentially unteach the stomach how to do its own digestive work, right? Hmm. So the stomach would sort of degenerate and unlearn how to do its own work. So he came up with this idea of peptogenic foods that would not substitute the digestive process, but merely sort of kickstart the body's own digestive mechanisms. And that really resonated, I think, with broader cultural concerns at the time about things having become too easy in society, Mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. Like the comforts of modern civilization, There was a lot of debate at the time about welfare, about, you know, giving people easy money, especially um, giving African-Americans benefits. And there was critique of the financial market. So just making money out of money. So these products really offered a kind of good consumption that was at the same time a critique of consumption, which to me is just fascinating how, you know, that mental gymnastic, that torsion came together in this product. We're going to take a break. When we come back, the more nutrition hype that gets churned out, the more we develop ever more convoluted and anxiety-provoking rules about eating. Is there anything to these rules or is it all bullshit? That's next. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. We're back 
with Lisa Haushofer, a historian of science and author of Wonder Foods. So I will tip my hand a little bit here and have decided in response to the question, what what should we eat? The answer is, that's the wrong question. (laughs) (laughs) Kind of all food that tastes good and that's pretty good, that doesn't have a lot of mold in it, that keeps you from starvation is pretty good, you know? And the cost of orthorexia or, you know, the kind of overly worrying about what kind of food you eat and obsessing over its health effects. And also the idea that I'm morally falling apart, that my masculinity or my slimness or whatever is endangered by what I put in my mouth more than my anxiety about what I put in my mouth seems off to me. I guess I've gotten into eat sort of whatever's at hand, you know? Yeah, I think I agree. And one of the insights that what I learned from from this research is not that nutrition isn't important, but the kind of focus that we've had on nutrition and on a particular kind of nutritional research has just diverted our attention away from other issues related to food, you know, like sustainability, like food security, like food equality, and like food labor as well. I mean, so much mm-hmm. of our food... Mm-hmm you know, is produced by people who work in appalling conditions. And the pandemic has brought that to the fore again with the, for example, the appalling conditions in meat processing factories. And I feel like so much more attention and energy could be directed at restoring those parts of our food system and improving them rather than this very, very highly, you know, individual focused kind of fine tuning, you know, which nutrient is better. And I think you're right that nutritional research is is really complicated, but I think there are basically two insights that seem to keep being confirmed over and over again Hmm. by different kinds of studies as well. And that is that a diet that's high in plant food is better than a diet that's not high in plant food. And that eating a variety of foods, including plant foods, is better than not eating a variety of foods. So I think you can get quite far with these insights, I think. You know, that's already a lot to base your diet on. Yeah. And then, you know, there's still attention left for thinking about these other issues. Yeah. Yeah. I think that it's the putting numbers on things, this X number of servings of something a day that makes you feel like you have a failed day or a, you know, success day that you can check off at the end that, I don't know, all of it, the numbers, the grams, the calorie counts in restaurants, they seem to engage a different part of the brain than just the simple decision of what to eat. Absolutely. Yeah. No, I totally, and even just the fact that So much of this has become the individual's responsibility, right? So that's also a big outcome of this story of this close association between the nutrition sciences and nutritional entrepreneurship Yeah, is that so much of nutrition works through individual choices, individual choices about what to eat, about what to buy. Mm. And so much of nutrition actually starts before that, right? So so guaranteeing a sustainable, safe, nutritious food source starts much, much sooner and hmm. at the level of regulation, at the level of labor. I mean, my colleagues Gabriel Rosenberg and Jan Dutkiewicz recently pointed out that 
to this day, there is in the U.S. no independent government agency that's dedicated only to food. Food is still regulated in a very fragmented way that's divided between the FDA, the United States Department of Agriculture, and the Federal Trade Commission. And that means that issues like production, labor, consumption, sustainability, and nutrition are not thought and regulated together, but very separately. So I want to talk a a little bit about cereal. And just to give Kellogg his due, I'm very sensitive to people who are critical of even fast food. My mother grew up in the hollows of West Virginia, and she remembers when McDonald's came to town, and it was fresh from California. It was meat that was pretty much guaranteed not to be rancid, hot burgers, and um, they even had a little lettuce or tomato on it, which was hard to grow in the rocks there, right? And people were malnourished, not in bigger bodies, but they were malnourished like with glandular disorders, or often a lot of them looked emaciated. And the first bite of a burger that was completely affordable was just, in every way, pleasurable and wonderfully filling. And she just watched McDonald's turn into, instead of a wonderful treat that you welcome to the town like the circus, considered just beneath contempt. And cereal, you know, I don't know if it's any good for me, but I really, I like recently have rediscovered Wheaties. It's just such a great thing in the morning. So, you know, in a way, the invention of cereal, I mean, it seems better than the invention of margarine. How about that? I don't think it's something we should look down on, you know? I mean, he might have invented a cool thing, even if from terrible instincts. What do you think? Yeah, I think the, you know, the, the story of the book is also the story of how food did become available to more people in more places. I mean, it is also the story of how we went from a lot of people who were undernourished and malnourished to less people who were undernourished and malnourished. But that still means that we need to pay attention to where malnutrition and food insecurity persists. And the thing is, it is structured exactly along racial lines, Mm. along socioeconomic lines, right? So things like fast food, right? There's a really important history also that has to do with food availability and where the the supermarkets with the nutritious Mm -hmm. foods ended up and where the fast food restaurants ended up. So my colleagues Ashante Rees and Chin Shu have written about this, how the availability of supermarkets and fast food was really structured along racial lines and distributed unevenly in cities. Uh, So I think that's also a really important part of this story and yeah, it's a very complex history, and that's certainly also an outcome of this this thinking about, you know, how to maximize the food supply. But, you know, it comes with consequences and it comes with inequality. Hmm. Yeah. I mean, and inequality obviously has enormous effects on health. Absolutely. Well, so one of the things I'm not totally sure about is, is all of this bullshit? Like, sometimes I just think, I feel like we might know nothing about nutrition. It's just, it just seems like an infinite mystery. And maybe what you put in your mouth, although it feels like it must be highly consequential, is 
secondary, tertiary, or even like way down the list when it comes to relationships, you know, some nature in your life, you know, a little bit of quiet time, maybe some sleep. But it seems so dramatic what you (laughs) put in your mouth. And it's such a badge of who you are. I hate that show me what a man eats and I'll show you what he is or something like that. Yeah. (laughs) It doesn't sync with you know, the lived experience of the world. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I also came to that question, I have to say, like, is all of this bullshit? Like that at some point in the research, I was like, you know, can I trust any nutritional research? And I think the answer is absolutely yes. So there is mm. definitely, right, nutrition science is worth doing and there are people who are doing it. I think the problem is that because of this close association between the nutrition sciences and nutrition entrepreneurship, that a lot of nutrition science is being funded by producers of food products and nutritional products. Mm -hmm. So Mm -hmm. the ways in which food research is, nutritional research is conducted is very much linked to the business of food. And then there is also a way in which this history has led to a very narrow focus on how nutritional scientific research is conducted, right? So this hyper-focus on a nutrient and its effect. And that's actually really hard to research. And my colleague Yogi Screenis has written about this. Uh, He calls this nutritionism. And that has really, Hmm. in some ways, limited our nutritional scientific thinking and how food can be studied. And it's only recently that people have thought a bit more broadly about, for example, the interactions of different nutrients or the relationship between nutrients at what's called the the food matrix. So the kind of non-nutrient content of a food. So I think doing nutritional science well requires independent funding. It requires rethinking that's not as narrow And I think at the end of the day, it should also never be separate from questions of sustainability and food security and and food labor. Like those issues should never be excluded because of this narrow focus on nutrition. We're going to take another break. When we come back, so many nutritional rules seem to be culturally determined. So is there legitimate nutrition science that's shaping the culture of food? Or is it the other way around? That's next. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. We're back with Lisa Haushofer, a historian of science and the author of Wonder Foods. So, Lisa, there is so much exaggerated importance attached to how we eat. I, I don't cook, and I was, uh, when I, my children were babies, I was walking through a grocery store and I heard someone say, I just, I love making delicious 
and wait for the rhyme, and nutritious meals every night. (laughs) And I was like, oh my God, every night. Like, I have to do this and not just get something to keep the kids alive on the table, but it has to be cool and classy and plated properly. And we all have to sit around the table and it can't be leftovers and it has to have all the macronutrients. And, you know, I found myself at the end of the day thinking, well, you know, my daughter didn't get enough vegetables at lunch. That cannot be the way we're supposed to address eating. It just can't be. Yeah. And, you know, and so much of the history of nutrition science, I think, is also the story of how supposedly nutritional scientific claims have been used to legitimize certain eating customs, things that we like to eat, but also ways of cracking down on habits where there's more moral at play than actually health. So my colleague Helen White has written about this. So the close association between moralizing and nutritional prescriptions that are sustained with a nutritional scientific logic. And then the flip side of that is, you know, the legitimation of cultural norms. I mean, it's no coincidence, I think, that people who are concerned about a crisis of masculinity like Peterson are also often advocates of this kind of very masculine hunter-gatherer style of eating, eating only steak. So I think that's very connected. I think this is fantastically interesting because we have this opportunity, ideally two or three times a day, five times a day to think about this, and no one can get away from it. I mean, food is there. You're putting it in your body and ideally with as little anxiety as possible. So I just love this book. And it's so interesting to see the lines between food and masculinity culture and this obsession with whiteness and food. That's something I really took from the book. Thank you so much. That's very kind. That was very close to my heart when writing it. Thanks again for being here, Lisa. Thank you so much. That's it for this week's episode of This is Critical. Make sure you don't miss next week's episode by following us or subscribing on Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, Pandora, or wherever you like to listen. And if you like what you hear, please take a moment to rate and review the show in Apple Podcasts. It really helps other people learn about the show. For more information and to keep tabs on the show, follow me on Twitter at page 88 and at this critical pod. If you have a question or a cultural creed you think deserves another look, send us an email at thisiscriticalpod at gmail.com. This is Critical is made by me, Virginia Heffernan, and Stitcher. Ayla Fader, Corinne Wallace, and Michelle O'Brien are the producers. Tracy Samuelson is our editor. Brendan Burns mixed this episode and composed our original theme. And Josephine Martirana is our executive producer. Thanks for listening and stay critical. Stitcher. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Life is a highway. 
And on it, there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy So go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour.